All right, if you haven't already, take out your sermon notes and then also turn to Ephesians chapter 6, the passage we just read. That's going to be one they're going to refer to here in a second. We're taking a break from our study of 1 Corinthians, obviously, because today we've already acknowledged it, is the focus on dads in our national holiday. And Father's Day, like Mother's Day, is a very emotional day. For some, you've had a great relationship with your dads, and others you haven't. For some of you, you've had dads with good characters, and others you don't. For some of you, you have a dad who's still alive, and others you don't. And too many of you have lost your father within the past year or two. And as we always say, death is incredibly painful. And I love my dad. He's not saved. Talked to him yesterday. Perhaps we'll talk to him today. Thinking of just the gamut of the emotions. You know, there could be people here that are just happy as all get out. It's Father's Day and love their dads. And there's others. It's always hard for us sometimes to remember that there are dads that are, I mean, there are people who are really angry on this day because of the dads that they had. I don't know, didn't know where it emotionally had come from other than to, I thought out of this, out of um, a way to honor dads, be encouraging. I, I got this video to get the lights. I, I, here's a video from a 1968 TV show. And the reason I thought of this is I want you, if you, if you want to know me and understand my past, when I was growing up, the TV show Gomer Pyle meant a lot to me. It was fun, and it had a lot of truths in it. And I'm not saying we're going to ever take it to where some people are using it for Bible study. That's not what we're using it. Here's a clip from an episode that brought tears to my eyes probably when I was like eight or nine years old. I probably saw it originally. That's how old I was in 1968. Saw it, I know, probably a couple times in reruns in 1970. Setting this episode, if you're unfamiliar with there's a TV show back in the 1960s about a goofy Marine. And at times he would do things that were very, very um, good. Well, in most of the shows he would end up doing something good, but he'd do some, do some things that are very powerful. And in this episode we're going to look at, he's going to sing a song that is about dads. And listen to the words. And sadly, there's going to, well, the episode was set where there was a man who was estranged for his dad. It's set in a club and the, there's going to be some laughter because it's a comedy show. And it's interesting from a world's perspective, there really shouldn't have been laughter at that point. There should have been more of an emotional tug. But the man will have to talk. The man that's going to come in here is the club owner and he's going to be seen um, later in the show as one who's going to be reconciled with his dad. But that's secondary to this. But listen to this song and know that this is my heart's desire for everyone to have with their relationship with their father. So, Brian, if you'll please run this. Oh, my papa was so wonderful oh my papa to me he was so good no one could be hey frank give me what you got in the register so oh my papa he always understood God 
his knee and with a smile he changed my tears to laughter oh my papa so funny so adorable always the clown so funny in his way conveys a relationship you all would have with your dad and Mother's Day is often seen as emotional but Dad's Day should be emotional too. Father's Day, Mother's Day are not mandated in the Bible. The reason we're in Ephesians chapter 6 is because I thought it would be good for us to again remember the fact that God wants us to honor moms and dads every day. Look at verse 2. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. This is what we're to do every day. Honor our fathers and mothers, to give them respect. And it's not just a mere one special day out of the year. It means to give a special recognition that includes an attitude and an action over a course of a lifetime. This is a commandment I think that's so fascinating to study because it's pulled from the Old Testament. It's a commandment that one of the Ten Commandments that is repeated. We say nine out of the Ten Commandments are repeated. But look at verse 3. It's a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And so it's important that we continue to teach our children and us as adults. We always remember that how critical it is that we honor and respect our mothers, and obviously on this day, our fathers. And it's something that as we carry our understanding of how fathers and mothers are to be respected in the Old Testament, I was thinking about how God continues to model that throughout the Old Testament, continues to model it throughout the Bible, that they're to be respected. I'm not going to have you turn there, but you just jot down passages like Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8 and following, and Proverbs chapter 10, that, that a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to mom and dad. Throughout Proverbs, God is constantly saying, children, honor your mother and father. Listen to what they say. Put into practice what they want you to do. And I think that's interesting that both fathers and mothers are to be honored. It's not just the dads. It's the fathers and the mothers. And here's an interesting take. I thought it would be interesting for us to look at this. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Because something I thought would be interesting for you guys to think about. In Genesis chapter 1, in the creation account of the literal six days, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image. And we believe that our is a precursor to giving us the of, of the idea of uh, progressive revelation, the 
concept that we're going to learn that there is a trinity. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But the whole struggle for mankind is to understand what that image is. But it's interesting as you go on, according to our likeness, verse 26, let them rule over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. It's repeated in verse 27. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God made man in his image, male and female. And yet, ironically, God is always referred to as God the Father. There's never a passage that says God our mother. And when you look at the theology of many of the pagan religions, they have God the goddess. But we're never given that imagery. And as I want to this morning, if you look at your sermon notes, I want to talk about what God the Father teaches us about being God, of the, God, um, God the Father teaches us about being an earth father. I found it interesting that, again, there are no quotes or direct passages that says, you know, God, our mother in Scripture. And started thinking through the concept of God's attributes as a father and how they relate to earthly fathers. And the idea to me was like thinking, well, what, what can we learn about God, the heavenly father, that can help us as earthly fathers and children that are honor our earthly fathers? <laughs> and it was a study that started making me think, well, then you have to go into the attributes of God. And just as a little short theological lesson here, when you study God, there are studies of God's attributes. And when you look at those attributes, there are attributes that God has that only God has, and there are attributes that God has that we all can participate in. Now, the technical term for this is communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. I've shared that with you before. It's a big expression. But for those of you who like to do your theological studies, that's the technical expression. Communicable attributes are attributes that God has and only he has. And he is eternal, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he is omnipresent, he's immutable. There's a long list of these, and here's a challenge to you. Try to think about what are those attributes. See if you can come up with a list of at least 10. And when you really grasp the idea of like God having just these attributes... It begins to show you how these cults that come up with ideas like Jesus was a man who became a God can't be true in the sense of the very nature of what God is. Because if God has these communicable attributes, and his, one of them is like he's eternal and immutable, which is a very technical term for the fact that he doesn't change, then, then Jesus couldn't become a God because the very nature of God is that he is eternal. All right, but on the communicable attributes, um, did I get those wrong? The incommunicable attributes are the ones where God has, and God has those alone. On the communicable attributes, in essence, we can have them. That God is love, he, we can love. God thinks, and we can think. And God sees, and we can see, you know, in a sense. Now, obviously, when you study each one of those, even in the, in the communicable th- attributes, is that we can see that God is absolutely perfect in those. God thinks perfectly, loves perfectly, sees perfectly, and all of that. But what we're going to do today is we're going to take a few of these attributes of God 
and where there's God the Father, and then we'll see how it relates to earthly fathers. And so, if you will, turn in your Bibles. Today's a topical lesson. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. I mean, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5. Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. And let me just set the background. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is telling us about uh, how our righteousness needs to surpass the scribes and the Pharisees. This is one of the most famous sermons in all the Bible. It goes from chapter 5 to chapter 7. And we're going to pick up in verse 43 of chapter 5, where Jesus is in a section of trying to reorient the Jews regarding a proper understanding of like six Old Testament passages. And how this is going to relate uh, to Father is that he's going to bring in God the Father in his perfection. So fill in the blank, as we're going to see, a perfect Father only exists in heaven. And what I want to do today is I'm not going to give you all the verses or have you turn to all these verses because I just want to be able to, to talk about the principle and then hit on the application. On your sheets, I don't give you the applications. You have to listen for those, the ramifications. So let's pick up Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you to do than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is a basic truth of the Bible. Fill in the blank with the word perfect if you haven't already. It's a foundational truth. And I know this can sound really simple, um, but there are going to be some surprises as we go forward. For the simple point is, is that we have a God who is perfect. Now, so many passages, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We could have gone through. But the idea here is that God is complete. He's mature. There's nothing lacking. And when we see in verse 48, it says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. There is this idea that we are to strive for this. But we recognize, and I put on your notes there, that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We're not perfect. Ironically, later on in the book of 1 Corinthians, which we've already studied, speaking to believers, the same Greek word, teleos, will be used to say that you are perfect, you are mature. And it's a great study to understand how words in their context can mean different things. I believe when we talk about perfection of God here in verse 48, we're talking about the fact that he is ideal. There's nothing lacking. I think 1 Corinthians is talking about that we're complete in the sense that we are all together there as Christians and we're born again. So interesting how the same word can have a slightly different meaning in the different context. But the big picture here today is to understand a perfect father only exists in heaven. And we are told to strive for that. And as a dad, I can see, as I look to be an influence upon my children, I want to strive for that perfection. I don't want to fail. And I don't want to be what people would call a hypocrite. And, 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 and that's something that always haunts me as a dad because I know my imperfections. And I know that at times I'm not always perfect. 
I ran across this story, ran across it in several places this week as I was preparing this message. And I thought, well, you know, keep hitting me. So it's called The Failure of a Father. And this is something that like haunts me because uh, this failure is something I never wanted to have it accused of me. And it's, it's a story that goes like this. It says, the story is told of a young man who stood before a judge to be sentenced for forgery. forgery. And the judge had been a friend of the boy's father who was, a fa- who was famous for his books on the law of trust. So his father was this famous lawyer. And he says, young man, the judge said sternly, do you remember your father the father whom you disgraced. You know who your father is and his character in the community. And the young boy said, oh, I remember him perfectly. The young man answered, when I went to him for companionship, when I went to him for help, he would say, run away, boy. I'm busy. I'm busy writing my books. And he goes, well, my father has finished my book and here I am before you in court. And I like, Stories like this are things that have hit me through the years that I want to always be there for my kids. And I want to have a godly character before them. But at the same time, I recognize, I know that I'm not going to be perfect. And I know that no father is ever going to be perfect. So I brought the notes. I thought, you know, there's a sense where if I recognize there's only one perfect father, there's a reality that at times I'm going to need to have to give grace to my earthly father. And maybe that is somewhere that you need to be today where you've got to recognize that, you know, no father on earth is ever going to be perfect. Now, the reality is, is that some dads aren't saved, and they are harder than, harsher than others, and their character really greatly lacks. And so on this day, as we've already prayed, pray for unsaved dads. And there are dads that are believers, and we need to encourage them and help them along and pray for them because even believing dads are going to be at times failing you. There's a passage that always appeals to me, makes me think. It's in 1 Timothy. If you'll turn there, 1 Timothy is telling about how to give a rebuke to an older man. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to younger men as brothers. And I thought to myself, and I've thought through this through the years, you know, that you're to have a respect and an honor. And as you go to an older man, who would probably most likely be a father, and how you bring correction to him. There's a gentleness, there's a respect, there's an honor to it. I probably should tell the story about how I failed. When I was a young man, oh, did I blow this verse? There was a situation where an older man was doing something very inappropriately, and I blew up at him. And, and, and yes, my wife is reminding me. And so I went back, and I apologized and, and stuff. But I recognize that I recognize that a perfect father exists only in heaven. And hopefully that will help all of us have that right mindset. And it's only by the grace of God that anyone is saved. And it's only by the grace of God that they live faithfully. But it doesn't mean that we stop trying and we don't, we, we don't want our fathers to live godly. But it's so important that if we have that understanding, 
maybe it'll help some of our relationships if we recognize and remember a perfect father exists only in heaven. But the very concept of God being a father deals with the idea of him giving birth. And there are so many passages we can turn to. On your sermon notes, the second passage I have listed there is 1 Timothy 1, 3. Actually, it's 6, 13. I, I gave Lynn the wrong passage. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you haven't, um, or you aren't in 1 Timothy already. In chapter 6, Verse 13, here's the truth that it's important for us to remember. Um, I charge you, Paul is writing in 1 Timothy 6.13, in the presence of God, and it's almost like a side point, but it's our main point here. Verse 13, who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. There are passage after passage after passage that talks about God as the giver of life. God is the giver of life. And so fill in the first blank. A father begets. There are many passages in the Old Testament that gives you genealogy, like Adam beget Seth and Seth beget Enosh. What does that mean? It means one who gives birth. And in the big picture of, of theology, we recognize God is the father of all. That James 117 passage there is, you know, is all good things come from God. And that, in essence, he's the father of lights. He's the father of all good things. And as we even read in that passage in Matthew chapter 5, he's a father who allows good to fall on the, the rain to fall on the good and the evil. Theologically, have you ever thought about the fact that God is the father of all from a standpoint that he gives life like an earthly father is one who gives life? And I thought it was interesting as I thought through the sexual reproduction process that in the earthly father, he's the one that makes a decision to engage in sexual activity. Um, you know, that there is a mental ascent that has to take place so that, that in the sense of the decision-making process, it is more of a decision from the husband's standpoint than it is the wife's standpoint. And uh, that is interesting in the sense that God is the one who chose to give life to humanity. And in an earthly perspective, ultimately it's a dad who says, I'm, I'm going to engage in the sexual activity that should you know, result in people having children, um, a wife having a child. Now, when you... Understand that God is big picture, the father of all living. It's not until you can jot this down, you know, one of the more clear passages in, in Scripture is that we understand on a spiritual plane that God is, God is um, recognizing that mankind has Satan as their spiritual father. Now, when we look at theological concept of one that begets the idea of the one who's a father is one that is responsible for providing and we can look at passage after passage whether it's even that first timothy chapter 5 passage where earthly fathers are to pick up on what god the father does and and that's why the matthew chapter 5 passage 
make so much sense theologically. God is the one who provides the earth and the resources of this earth for life. All of human life to exist. God takes the very nature of, of a father and he's responsible. All right? He's responsible for his children. And when you look and understand that, a father, though, has control of his children as long as they're an earthly father, as long as he's in their home. But I ran through a series of situations that all come about because of the fall, where parents who have young children die, and they can no longer be responsible and have control over their children. Or parents cannot financially um, support a child, and that child is put up for adoption. Or parents are sinful, and they don't want to be responsible. And we've seen this in our world, where they just abandon a child, and that child might end up in an orphanage and not be adopted. And, and it's interesting where you look theologically God is the one who gave life to all, but in the sense where control is lost at the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, it put all of humanity spiritually under the control of Satan. And through the death of Jesus Christ, mankind can now be brought back into God's family through a process of adoption. And a father begets as well as adopts, fill in the blank. And the idea here is that through history, and especially even in the Bible, where we see fathers go through the process of living out this concept called adoption. And it's interesting to me that God brings this in and uses this as one of the key New Testament concepts for us who are Christians. Turn in your Bibles to, let's, let's, let me see, yeah, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, and I'm going to have us read the Galatians passage, too, in a second. But in Romans, chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is talking about how believers have the Spirit of God and how we become children of God. And he says this in verse 14, Romans, chapter 8, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Abba, Daddy, okay? We receive the spirit of adoption. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of of God and fellow heirs with Christ, indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. And the idea here is that we, although all are humans and made in the image of God. The control has been broken at the fall and we were spiritually no longer in his family. And now when we become believers through Jesus Christ, the spirit of God comes in in and we are adopted into his family. And, And so it's important to us to remember when a father begets, he is responsible and he has control but he also at times can bring people into his responsibility and into his control through this process of adoption. And and turn to Galatians 4, and as you're turning there, I want us to think about this concept. We'll look at it in other studies in the future, but it is a critical one that I hope that we all grasp 
To adopt means to take on one as your own. And it's critical that we understand this concept for all of us that we recognize we've been adopted by God the Father. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and that we have a good and proper understanding of adoption. Adoption is something that is, is I think, wonderful. It's good. Many um, times, though, adoption is, is um, disparaged in our society. And it's hard for children that are adopted. And that some, because in our culture, and, and I've caught myself prior to myself going through the, the process of adopting children, of realizing, oh my goodness, there has been times when I flippantly talked about adoption in a, in a very mean-spirited way. And since being a dad who's adopted children, I've recognized, oh my goodness, can you just like not say things like that? And I'm talking about like when, you know, you go out with another couple and they've got three, four kids and they're playing with their kids and they're all, they're the birth parents of those kids and maybe the mother looks at one of her kids and her kid's acting up and she says, oh, don't mind that one, he's adopted. And, like, like, adopted kids are going to act up. Like, obviously, she's trying to make sense, sense of the fact that this one child out of the four are not, is not acting right. But if you're sitting there with an adopted child, that's painful. It's like, what are you saying? Do you recognize I've got adopted children here? And, you know, another kid will say to her brother or sister when, when they're birth kids and they're in the same family and the brother's acting up or she wants to hurt her brother she'll say hey you know you realize you were we found you on the steps you you're adopted and sort of like that's a way to you know stick it to her kid and then one that's been going around a lot on the internet that i've often found very discouraging there's a picture of two babies and one baby they're both in diapers and the baby one baby is laughing and the other baby is in tears and and the caption underneath it says dude i'm joking you're really not adopted Sort of like if you tell someone they're adopted, it's a knife inside them and a twist, and it's going to make them hurt. Well, here's something we, all, we have to, I think, one, be sensitive to that because there are so many people, as I've realized as being a pastor, it's, it's overwhelming the number of people that have been adopted or parents that have adopted. But theologically, do we grasp that we all are adopted? And as parents, that's what we want from a spiritual perspective for everyone to be adopted. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Um, Galatians chapter 4. When, when the fullness of time came, at the perfect time, Jesus Christ came, and he sent forth his son, verse 4 says, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem, redeem those who were under the law, that what? We may receive the adoption as sons. And because you are a son, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, there it is again, Abba, Father. Because before, you were not in his family spiritually. And I hope that is something that all of you think about. And if you're here and you're visiting this day, unless you've been born again through belief, through this one that was born at the perfect time, Jesus Christ, you're not in God's family. And the only way to get there is to be born again. I got to read this to you. Tim Keller, I've been reading some of it. I read one of his books and some of his other material. I got to just point this out. This is kind of an interesting little fun fact on this verse in the Sons of God. Um, 
Some people are put off by Paul's language of adoption, he writes, because it's gender insensitive. They argue, wouldn't it be better to say we become sons and daughters of God instead of just saying sons of God? It would be, it would, but that misses the whole point. Some time ago, he writes, a woman helped me in understanding this. She was raised in a non-Western family from a very traditional culture. There was only one son in the family. It was understood in her culture that he would receive most of the family's provisions and honor. In essence, they said, he's the son, you're just a girl. That's just the way it was. One day, she was studying a passage on adoption in Paul's writings, but suddenly realized that the apostle was making a revolutionary claim. Paul lived in a traditional culture just like she did. He was living in a place where daughters were second-class citizens. When Paul said, out of his traditional culture, that we are sons in Christ, he was saying that there was no second-class citizen in God's family. When you give your life to Christ and become a Christian, you receive all the benefits a son enjoys in a traditional culture. And as a white male, I've never been excluded like that, he says. As a result, I didn't see the sweetness of his welcome. I didn't recognize all the beauty of God's subversive and revolutionary promise that raises us to the highest honor by adopting us as sons. Our adoption means we are loved like Christ is loved. We are honored like he is honored. Every one of us, no matter what. A father begets as well as adopts. Quickly, a father is a leader. A father is a leader. Just turn quickly to 1 Corinthians 11, and I'll just jot this down. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the fact that we see in Scripture when we pray, it's our Father who art in heaven. God is the ultimate, ultimate leader. And obviously I can make theological point after theological point about this, that God is a leader. And by implication, the very nature of a father in a family is that he is a leader. And, and that by our understanding of what a leader is, he's one who takes initiative. He wants, he gets involved. He is not somebody that is standoffish. He is somebody that has to set the standards. He has to be someone that manages household well. Think of 1 Timothy chapter 3. An elder is to be one who manages his household well. That's the concept of leadership. Passages like Mark chapter 10, um, yeah, 10, um, 42 to 45. The very fact that the type of leadership we are to have is a servant leadership is the is the idea that we are to understand how God serves us. But there is the idea of a leader being the one that's in charge. And I, I thought it'd be good for you to just remember this. 1 Corinthians 11, it's a passage that is often read for communion. We'll get there in our own study in a couple months, maybe a year. But look at verse 3, where he says, I want you to understand Christ is the head of every man. And here, every man needs to understand that Jesus Christ is his leader. And you could say, maybe you can take, take, it, take it to all of humanity, but we're speaking about male and female. And it says, the man is the head of a woman in Christ, and God is the head of Christ. God the Father is the head of Christ. There's a, there is this order. And what I want us to remember on this day, if we're going to say, okay, God is a leader, and fathers in a home are supposed to be a leader. And my challenge is, by implication, is dads, are you raising, rising up to that? You need to be a spiritual leader. You need to be someone that is leading your family and managing your household well. First Timothy 3, again, for sake of time. A great prayer, a great gift 
that I thought I'd share with you. Merrill Tenney, Bible writer, teacher, wrote this for his son. And I'd like to read this to you. It's what he says, what I'd love to give to you, my son, my child. And I hope this is something every father would want to give their child through their leadership. It's called a father's gift. And he says, to you, O son of mine, I cannot give a vast estate of wide and fertile lands. But I can't keep for you, but I can't keep for you while I live unstained hands. I have no blazon shield that ensures your path to eminence and worldly fame, but longer than empty heraldry endures a blameless name. I have no treasure chest of gold refined, no hoarded wealth of clinking, glittering pelf, the old English. I give to you my hand and my heart and mind. In essence, I give you all of myself. I can't exert no mighty influence to make a place for you in men's affairs, but lift to God in secret audience unceasing prayers. I cannot, though I would, be always near to guard your steps with parental rod. I trust your soul to him who holds you dear, your father's God. And to me, that's the father that leads. That's the father that serves by example. And then lastly, a father balances discipline with compassion. And when we look at God the Father as somebody that has set standards, this is an interesting challenge. Psalm 103 and, Psalm 12, and Hebrews 12 are two passages I'd like to quickly just go through. See, first turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, book of Hebrews. I think one of the hardest things to do for a dad today is the incredible genius of how God balances his discipline with his compassion. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, is a great passage. I'm just pulling this out. Where it's a passage on discipline. We're talking about punishment and, and to bring about growth in a child. Paul, or not Paul, the author of Hebrews says, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time that seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. So God brings discipline as, a God, as God the Father into believers' lives so that we could become holy. But how much discipline? How much and turn back to this passage. I tell you, I, when you do a passage, a study, a topical study on fathers, it, over and over, Psalm 103 is brought up. So I thought this will be the last passage, I think, I'll have you read. Psalm 103, verse 13. And it says this. Just as a father has compassion on his children... So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God has compassion. And it's balanced with those who fear him. And we know now that the only way you're going to have this relationship is through faith in Jesus Christ and those who are born again. But then as an earthly father, how God brings that discipline together is something that always perplexes me. It's the challenge. Like, did I go too far? Did I ground my kids 
for a month when it should have only been a day? <laughs> you know, did I bring too harsh of discipline? Was it too much so that I violated Ephesians where I exasperated them? And you know, so, you know, where I say a perfect father, you know, try to give your dad a little bit of grace. You understand, not every dad is going to, no dad is going to be perfect. A dad that is one who understands that everyone needs to be spiritually adopted, that's what we want to do. We want to encourage every father to make sure that they control of their child to God so that he's adopted in that family. And then we want everyone to be a leader. I want every dad to be a leader and to serve like God serves us as the perfect father. But when it comes to discipline, and I learn that God is a God that disciplines, but he has wisdom and he has compassion. He has a mercy involved in it. I want that wisdom because I recognize I don't want to be a dad that puts my kids over the edge. And it's something I struggle with. And that's where I can tell all of you, pray for fathers. Because if we are taking the leadership, and dads, I can tell you, when you don't take the leadership on discipline, it exasperates mothers and exasperates kids too. As we strive to understand the perfect balance, then we become the dads that God's wanted us to be. Perfect illustration over and over is the story of how God the Father is pictured as a judge who one day recognizes that a son has come before him and the father has to give the son a penalty in that courtroom. And he does, but then he gets behind, he gets off of the, the, the bench and comes down and serves the penalty for his son. That's probably one of the greatest illustrations of how a father balances discipline with compassion on the big scope. But I ran across another story with it. I thought it was a little different, so I thought I'd read it to you. It says, a small boy was consistently late coming home from school. Oh, and the reason I thought I'd read this one is because I recognize, you know, I'm, this has application for you and for me because I recognize I'm never going to be a courtroom judge. And maybe most of you aren't either. He goes, I read about a small boy who was consistently late coming home from school. His parents warned him one day that he must come home on time that afternoon. But nevertheless, he arrived later than ever. His mother met him at the door and said nothing. At dinner that night, the boy looked at his plate, and there was a slice of bread and a glass of water. He looked at his father's full plate and then at his, then at his father, but his father remained silent. The boy was crushed, and the father waited for the full impact to sink in, then quietly took the boy's plate and placed it in front of himself. He took his own plate of meat and potatoes and put it in front of the boy and smiled at his son. And when the boy grew to be a man, he said, All my life I've known what God is like by what my father did that night. Now, there are times when that kid should just get his, <laughs> his bread and water. I know that. But somehow our, our earthly father knows how to balance this ever so perfectly. So in conclusion, what I want to say to you is I want to encourage dads, you're not perfect. But by studying some key concepts of today, I'm hoping that God the Father encouraged you. And I hope for all of us, I hope this study reminded us what an earthly father is and what we can expect from him. Knowing that dads aren't always perfect, but dads have to strive to give their children the best example that they can. And if fathers, you're recognizing you're imperfect, and maybe you've never sat down with your children and talked to them about your imperfections, and maybe sometimes apologized if you went too far. That's something you have to discern. 
John MacArthur writes this about the church in regards to how I, about the church and how I'd like to apply it to fathers on this day. He says, the church, by the way, is not the gallery for the exhibition of eminent Christians, nor is it, in my mind, the gallery of just exemplary fathers. It is rather a hospital for the healing of those who are imperfect. We understand that. The church is filled with people who fall and people who fail. It is filled with sinners. As Charles Morrison once wrote, the Christian church is a society of sinners. It is the only society in the world where membership is available only to those who aren't qualified. We are not qualified to name, a, to name the name of Jesus Christ. We're not qualified to be a part of his church. And that qualifies us to be in it. The recognition of that and dependence upon him to do for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. And so dads, recognize on this day, you're not going to be perfect, but you need Christ in your life. We strive to be like our Heavenly Father, realizing in the meantime, only He's perfect. We want our children to be put up for adoption by God, and that is because we know how important it is that we were adopted by Him. We must be leaders, and that leadership is bound by, is a broad perspective, but honestly, Dad, challenge yourselves to lead this day. And finally, we must discipline and show compassion with the utmost wisdom, like our Heavenly Father has shown us. I truly believe on this last point, only a father who has not been, often a father who has not been forgiven by God does not show compassion. And for all of us, may we have a father in heaven who has perfectly displayed his compassion in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example you've given us, how you've sovereignly chosen that he's grand design that it's God our father, not God our mother, and that through so many passages that we just scratched the surface on, we can begin to understand what an earthly father is to do from your example, the way you take responsibility, the way you provide, the way you lead. How I pray that this is a great encouragement for dads today and a time that they remember too that none of us are perfect and how we all need Jesus. Lord, you sovereignly designed the family that it has an emotional bent. And on this day... Like a song, oh my papa, you are one that has put these men in our lives that mean so much to us. We thank you for their strength and at the same time their tenderness. And somehow, some way, as the Spirit works in us, we, grant, we understand that you are a God that is strong and tender. And we say, Abba Father, Daddy, we're thankful for our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.